Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, wrote, It is, in fact, the most normal thing in the common Christian life to pray together. That was his position, that it is the most normal thing for Christians to pray with one another. I would ask us here in 2019 how normal it is for us to regularly pray with other people. Not to pray, and not to pray for other people, but actually to pray with other people. I would expect that it's quite normal for many of us to to pray individually for various things. I would also suspect that it's quite normal for us to to say and to tell someone else that we are praying for them. Uh, Social media has made this very accessible Before I left Facebook and Twitter, I remember seeing regularly someone saying something about, oh, I'm going through this, I could use prayers, and people quickly shooting back, I will pray for you, a quick comment back to them, I will pray for you. It's probably normal for us to to pray individually, it's probably normal for many of us to, to pray for others, but is it normative, is it a normative part of your Christian walk to pray with others face-to-face? How normal is it for you to see that post on Facebook and actually, rather than just typing back, I will pray for you, actually calling that person up and saying, can I pray with you now? When someone walks through the the hallways and and they tell you something that's going on in their life, uh, we had this tragedy in our family or, or I'm struggling with this, how often, how normative is it for you to stop and say, let me pray for you right now? I would suspect that that is not as normative for us. But I believe the Bible teaches, not just Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but even a greater authority teaches, the Bible teaches that it should be a normal part of the Christian life for Christians to pray with one another, to pray together. Which is why the final challenge in our 2019 challenge series is that in the year ahead, that we as Christians and even if you're not a Christian in here, but you want to join us in this challenge, we'll begin the practice of praying together. That the Spencerfield family, that it would become a normative part of our lives to pray with one another. And when I say that, I don't simply mean that we come into this room and pray together, but that we individually take time with others, whether it be in this church family or outside of this church family, to pray together. I was at uh, U Pizza in Clarksville yesterday, eating pizza but drinking water. Don't worry, if you were here last week, you get that. Um, eating pizza but drinking water, and we were, I was there with Pastor Lerone and Pastor Jason, and we were sitting there chatting, but I was so blessed. There was this group of teenage young ladies that were sitting just at a table near us, and they were all praying together, and I was just so touched. I'm in Panera often to write up my sermons. There's just enough din of noise, but no other distractions to, to, to help me with my ADD. You know, it's enough of a distraction, but enough not too much so that I can still focus. Uh, and, and I see regularly groups of people, young and old and various people, they are studying their Bibles together and praying together right there in Panera Bread. And I thought, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this beautiful? And wouldn't it be wonderful to see it be normative amongst our church family as well. 
that other people in the community would see our young people and see our older, not so young people, not old, not so young people, praying together, making this a part of our Christian life. You see, the concept of prayer is a concept that is about relationship first and foremost. First and foremost, it is a relationship with, with God. Jesus, when he taught us what we call the Lord's Prayer that we find in the book of Matthew, Jesus taught us to begin our prayers in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. Relationship language. When we, re- we also read six times in the Gospel of John. Six times Jesus tells us to ask for things of the Father and to do so praying in the name of Jesus. He's talking about because you have a relationship with me, feel comfortable going to the Father and praying in the name of Jesus. And then I want us to look at the one in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. So go about three quarters of the way through your Bible. And then Acts, thank you, Paul. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 8. Verses 14 and 15, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, and we would include daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of God, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, relationship language in the context of prayer. All these verses are describing assets aspects of prayer, and all are illustrated in the context of of a relationship. God is our Father. We ask God for things, trusting that those things will happen because we are in relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit confirms that we are sons and daughters of God, that we've been adopted into the family of God, and so we cry out to God and we pray to God, uh, not just using the term Father and God, but but praying literally Abba, which is a colloquialism for for Daddy in the Greek, the, the, the more intimate title of a father, relationship. But we also must establish and understand and recognize that in this relationship with the Godhead, we are not the only ones in that relationship with the Godhead. It's not just us and God and, and no one else. Have you ever had a really good friend and, and you were really close friends and suddenly they became friends with someone else and there's a little part of you that doesn't like that as much? Anyone remember those jealousies in your life? Those little small jealousies of, of man, why are they paying so much attention to that person? Or you call them up, hey, you want to do this? Oh, no, I'm already doing something with someone else and you're a, little bit, you're a little bit bothered. Sometimes we act like that in our Christian walk. We think it's just us and God and, and no one else around. But, but when we understand the concept of the relationship that we have with God, we need to recognize as well that that relationship then ties us to all others that are connected to God also. Megan Hill wrote, in order to embrace the practice of praying together, we first have to understand that Christians are in fact together. We are, in fact, together in this, in this journey, in this, in, this, in this story of our lives. I would say it like this, that we are together as Christians like hopefully most brothers and sisters are. The Christian language is not a, a language of distant cousins or even first cousins. I have first cousins that I literally have not spoken to in probably 10 years or more. But I don't let 
even that a few weeks probably go by that I don't speak to my, to my sisters, to, to the, my intimate family. The language of Scripture is about relationship, and it's not just us and God, but then it connects us to one another. As Megan Hill said, in order for us to begin praying together, we first have to understand that we are together as Christians. This is illustrated in three visual uh, uh, ideas in the Scriptures, three, three visual pictures of the church that, that are given in Scripture. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, you can, you can read it later. The church here is described as a plant, as a vine. It's, it's, it's talking about Jesus, but it's talking about the church as a whole, as a plant. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, the church is being described as a, as a building. And in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, all these verses describe the church as a body. All of these verses, all of these scriptures emphasize our connectedness to one another. They emphasize our connectedness to one another. Oftentimes we could read these verses and we could think about it maybe only in our, in our solo viewpoint or we can look at it only as, as the aspects of what they teach us about Jesus. But they actually teach us about the nature of the church and how it should be together. In John chapter 15, Jesus doesn't say, I am the vine for you and I am a different vine for you and I am a different vine for you. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the what? The branches. In other words, there's one vine, but all the branches are interconnected to that one vine. In other words, by being connected to Jesus, we are all connected together. We are not in isolation. We are not solo. In the same way, when Jesus talks about the building, when Jesus talks about the building, or when, the script, when Paul talks about the building and teaches about the scriptures and says that Jesus is the cornerstone, he doesn't say Jesus is the cornerstone of, of my building and Jesus is a separate cornerstone for your building and Jesus is a separate cornerstone for your building. There's one building and there's one cornerstone and all the walls and all the makeup of that building are interconnected and they are us. One building, all of us interconnected. We are together. In the same way with the body. The Bible doesn't say that there is multiple bodies. What does it say? There is one body and there is one head of the church, even Christ Jesus. So there's one head. Jesus doesn't say, I'll be the head over here for you and your little thing and I'll be the head over here for you and your, your, your body. No, there's one head and all of us as the body are connected one to another. We nurture these relationships with Jesus as the vine, the cornerstone, and the head through worshiping with one another, through coming together as, as a family. Not independent, independent branches, not independent buildings, not independent body parts, but one. And we worship with one another. And we see in the book of Acts this picture of the church coming together again and again to worship and to celebrate God. And, and their unity, their connection, their relationship with God is further strengthened as they have relationship and connectivity to one another. And we see this very clearly in the book of Acts. But one of the key aspects of this coming together as, as one body that, is, that 
is woven throughout the entire book of Acts is this idea of praying together. Not just praying by ourselves, not just praying for others, but actually praying together. Charles Cashdollar, don't you love that name? Charles Cashdollar, that is a great name. He wrote that the he wrote that 19th century churches referred to the, the midweek prayer meeting, the weekly prayer meeting, as the social meeting, which is a perfect description since praying together should be the highest social event that any of us in the body participate in. This is what we see again in the book of Acts. And this is a model for us even in our individualized 21st century. We see the first act of this praying together in Acts chapter 1. I want to invite you to turn there. It's just one book backwards from Romans. If you're in Romans, you just go one book backwards to Acts chapter 1. And in verses 12 through 14. This is right after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And he's told the disciples, he's told his followers there on the hill to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise that he, had given, that he was going to give to them. That promise ended up being the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, the Bible reads, Then they, speaking of the disciples of Jesus and some other followers, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, then it lists the disciples, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, it tells us, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Three components of this prayer that we then see carried forward throughout the interplays of Jesus' followers in the book of Acts. The prayer, first of all, was deliberate and intentional and consistent. This wasn't a perfunctory prayer before a meeting. This wasn't a, a prayer like, oh, we're about to eat, we need to say a quick prayer. Jesus blesses food, amen. This was, it says they were devoted, they were devoted together, they were in prayer, in devotion with one another. The Bible also tells us that, that they were united in their prayer. They were praying in one accord. The prayer was united. They were all had one mind to, to pray with each other. And the prayer was inclusive. The prayer was together. The disciples, the women, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. There was no select or exclusive crowd. It wasn't that the disciples' prayers were somehow more powerful than, than the women's prayers that were in the room. It wasn't that, that Peter's prayer, because, well, he's Peter, was somehow more powerful than anyone else in the room. It's just like now, my prayers are not any more powerful than you, than your prayers. It's the collective whole of them all together praying that brought this power. And from that moment on, Luke who is the author of the book of Acts, records time and again the church's consistent commitment to praying together. Here's how consistent this commitment was. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. 28 chapters in the book of Acts. There are 20, there are 20 explicit, there are 20 explicit texts about the followers of Jesus 
praying together. 28 chapters, 20 explicit scriptures in the book of Acts about the disciples of Jesus praying together. Do we not think that this was an important part of what it meant to be a church, to be a follower of Jesus after his ascension into heaven? 28 chapters, 20 explicit texts. Some scholars believe that there was probably another 20 or 25 texts that are, that are implicitly insinuating the same thing. So in other words, throughout this entire book, over and over again, there's this picture of one of the aspects of the church, one of the key aspects of the church is the church of Christ praying together. Not just praying alone, not just praying for each other, but together. A very important piece. Is it normal for you to pray? Hopefully so. Is it normal for you to pray for others? Hopefully so. Should it be normal for us to also pray with others? It should be. Is it potentially even commanded or directed in the scriptures as well? Consider these two texts. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope, but be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And then Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Probably more often than not, if we were reading these, these texts in our private devotions, or even if we heard a preacher say them from the front, we would take those prayer directives because we are uh, the way we are in the 21st century, very, uh, very uh, polarized and separated and individualized. We would oftentimes probably apply these to our own private devotional life. We would read this and we'd say, yes, I need to rejoice in hope. I need to be patient in tribulation. I need to be constant in prayer. And we'd go home and say, I need to be constant in prayer. We would, we, would, we would go home and we would read Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 and we would say, okay, yes, I need to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And we would read it from our personal and individualized mindset. But both of these texts, both of these scriptures were written in letters not to an individual, but to a collective church, to groups of people. And so when, so when they were read in front of the entire group of people, Paul wasn't calling the individual to, read that, to hear that. And they wouldn't be sitting there in, in Rome and saying, we need to rejoice in hope. We need to, we need to uh, be patient in tribulation and we need to be constant in prayer. Okay, I got it. I'm getting up and I'm walking out of this room and going home to pray so I can do these things. They would read this and they would understand it as, oh, he's calling the church as a collective whole to do this with one another. When the Bible talks about when, when, when the Colossians heard the letter being read, the people of Colossae heard the letter being read, continually, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, they wouldn't say, that was a good message, I better start doing that at home by myself. They would look around and say, okay, we need to spend more time praying together. Can we get together to, to pray together? This is about the collective whole. Could it be that Paul is calling for more than just devotion to prayer in one's personal life, but he is also calling for the church to be committed to praying with one another and with others? I believe the overwhelming biblical evidence from, from the book of Acts on through, and in the Old Testament we see it as well, 
is that God desires us to pray together. The question is, then why don't we? Why don't we pray together? Well, for some, it might be embarrassment or awkwardness. If you weren't raised in a culture of prayer, I can understand that. That's, it's, it's unfamiliar to you to have, have someone praying with you. There might be, it might be because of busyness. We're so busy. Even as we walk through these halls, you know, the pastor went five minutes longer today, and I got that thing at home on the stove. I got to get going. I got to go home and maybe not stove, hopefully not stove, in the oven. I got to get home. We're too busy, so I'll say I'm praying for you and then walk right out the door. Or maybe the greatest reason is this. We don't see the necessity or the value of praying together. We don't see the necessity or value to praying together. What's, what's, what's the value in this? Any different than anything else? I, I, I say this because I think about the fact that, that there has been many times that I've unfortunately been with people in times of crisis. Some of you have experienced this as well. Been, in, been with people in times of crisis. Uh, maybe something's happening with one of their children. There's some crisis going on with one of their, their children or, or, or there's some, some illness with their, one of their parents or, or there's some financial crisis in their life. Do you know that I've never had anyone say, pray for me? A lot of times it's pray with me. In those moments, people are happy to pray with you. People that I've never seen pray with anybody else or, or talk about prayer, people that, are, that, that seem so far from God, in that moment, they want you to pray with them. They suddenly feel that crisis. They suddenly feel that need to, to have us pray for them or to pray with them. But shouldn't we be praying even when we don't feel that crisis? Isn't there a need and a value, a necessity to praying with one another? Until we understand the necessity, we don't usually focus and make a decision to do something. When I was learning how to drive and getting ready for my license, my parents had two cars. One car was an automatic. The other car was a stick shift and, uh, and you know, a manual transmission. Well, I decided I was going to learn on the automatic. But my dad said to me, well, I want you to also learn how to maybe drive the stick shift. My parents also had this thing where they said, you know, when you uh, uh, get your license, then we will uh, get you a car. They did it for my older sister, do it for you as well. We'll get you a used car. As long as it's within this price range, uh, this is what you, you can get what you want. And it's reasonable because there was one car that I liked that my parents didn't find very reasonable. But, but as long as it was reasonable. And so... I said, okay, and, and so, but my dad wanted to take me out, and so one day he took me out in my mom's Chevy Nova with her clutch that she had replaced herself. My mom's quite an awesome lady, and, uh, and she replaced that clutch her, herself. Uh, last week I said, I told you guys a story about me, you know, drinking cereal, I mean, eating cereal and drinking glasses of Coke for breakfast in the morning, and I said my parents would probably be embarrassed about this, and I had a text message uh, from my parents when I got home saying, yes, we are embarrassed, thank you very much. <laughs> So I do want to tell you that my mom is awesome. I mean, she, re she replaced clutches on cars. I mean, she's amazing. I love you, mom. Um, so they go to church and then they go home and watch us. Uh, so, 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 so I went out in this thing and, I'm, and it took me about five minutes of, and about two stop signs to say, you know what, I'm never gonna drive a stick shift. That, that was it. 
And we had another car. It was an automatic. And I got to choose the car I wanted. And I knew I was choosing an automatic. I didn't need to drive a stick shift. So forget it. I'm not going to learn. Five minutes. I'm done. I'm not going to learn this. this there's, there's no point to this. I go off to college. My friend Chris uh, Rose has a, has a Honda Civic, a red Honda Civic with a stick shift. And we're driving somewhere one time. And he decides to pull over. And he says, I want you to drive. I said, I can't drive a stick shift. He's like, I know you should, though. He said, every man needs to know how to drive a stick shift. You know, he's trying to appeal to my, to my male ego. I, I, I mean, I like musicals. I don't care. I'm not, I don't, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that. And so, I mean, the greatest movie ever, Sound of Music. Oh, man, I love it. Uh, so, so, but I, I say, okay. So I get into the car, and, and about five minutes of this, and I said, forget it. I don't need to ever drive a stick. And so I get out. And I didn't care because I owned an automatic. I didn't need to drive a stick shift. And then I got engaged to this beautiful, blonde-headed, blue-eyed girl who informed me that she never wanted to have anything but a manual transmission. <laughs> she said that driving an automatic is boring. And she said that that, that uh, the manual transmissions uh, last longer. I don't know if that's true or not, but this is what she told me, and I know nothing about cars, so I believed her. You know, my mom fixed the clutch. I don't know anything about cars. She told me these two things. And suddenly, this girl I'm going to marry never wants to drive an automatic, only a manual. It became a necessity. And so my wife took me out one day, and within a day, she taught me how to drive a stick shift. Because the value was increased, because it became a necessity. On a side note, that wonderful blue-eyed blonde that I, that I married, uh, for the last seven years, she's been driving an automatic, and this guy that was never going to drive a stick has only been driving a stick shift. Uh, so I don't know how that worked out, but I agree with her. I think driving an automatic is a bit boring, so, so it worked out. What's the point of this with prayer? If we don't see the necessity, the value of it, then we're not going to incorporate it into our lives. So I want to tell you a few things that, that are valuable about prayer. First is this. I don't know how to explain it. I don't understand it and I can't explain it, but something significant happens in the movements of heaven when we pray together. I don't know, understand that, but it does. Matthew 18 Verses 19 through 20 tells us, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth as a choir so beautifully sang just a little bit ago in Spanish, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus tells us that when, when in agreement we ask God, he will hear it and it will be done. And see, we see this is clearly in the context of praying together. An author that I love, Ellen White, utilizes this text in a multitude of places to illustrate a special power that exists when we pray together. In a book called Testimonies of the Church, Volume 3, she says, Our Savior follows his lessons of instruction with a promise that if two or three should be united in asking anything of God, it should be given them. Christ here shows that there must be union with others, even in our desires for a given object. Great importance, she says, is attached to the united prayer the union of purpose. God hears the prayers of the individuals. She doesn't downgrade that. She said, God hears the prayers of the individuals. But on this occasion, Jesus was giving a special and important lesson that we are to have a special, that, that is to have a special bearing upon his newly organized church on earth. We must pray together. 
Again, she writes, the Lord has promised that where two or three are met together in his name, there will be in, his, in the midst of those who meet together for prayer will receive an unction from the Holy Spirit, from the Holy One. There is a great need of secret prayer, again, affirming our private devotional life. But there is also need that several Christians meet together and unite with earnest their petitions to God. Their petitions to God. Now, maybe one of the problems is, is that we've always narrowed this down to a single prayer meeting. But really, it can be any time that Christians decide to come together and to unite in prayer. I hope that you would come to our prayer meeting. It's every Tuesday night, and you're welcome to join us. But, but, but it, it can be any time that, that Christians unite in prayer. I've been reading a book on revival. I started reading it several weeks ago. And, and there was a story in there about this lady in Scotland who was bedridden for 30 years. And she got lonely. And so she called some friends together. And she said, will you come together so we can begin just praying for our neighbors and for our town? And this lady that was bedridden for 30 years, calling her friends together to pray, this, this revival broke out in this Scottish town. And they traced it back to that. A few people coming together to pray. There was a, there was a special unction of the Holy Spirit there with them. Another reason why it's important for us to pray together is that it unites our hearts that otherwise might not be united in the church, but also in our, in our families and in our marriages. I read the following testimony from a young lady named Laura. She and her husband were married, but there was no love between them, she wrote. She wrote that for six years, her marriage had been in crisis. They'd gone to marital counseling with their pastor, but it didn't work. They'd gone to a professional marriage counselor, but it didn't work. They went to marriage seminars, but it wasn't working. They read marriage books, but it wasn't working. Still, they found themselves separating more and more. And by the way, I think all these things are good. I'm not denigrating those things. But they were still separating more and more. Then one day, Laura announced, she writes, that she was going to spend the next three weeks praying for their marriage. She was going to take three more weeks to pray for their marriage that God would do something. Her husband at first put down the idea and scorned her and mocked her. But the next day when, when Laura woke up and began to pray, here her husband came and he prayed with her. And the two of them prayed together. And for every, every day for the next three weeks, they prayed with each other. She wrote a great deal more in her testimony, but she ended with this. God is so good and so merciful. His love endures forever. I can testify to it. God has healed my marriage and brought peace and happiness into our marriage again. My husband, she says, is crazy in love with me more than you can imagine. Prayer, praying together, can truly unite hearts. But not just hearts in marriage. Hearts of the church as well. There's a quote that says, a spirit of prayer will actuate every believer and will banish from the church discord and strife. Could, could our local church maybe use some of that? Could our, could our global church use some of that? Could our world use some of that banishment of strife and, and discord? Another benefit to praying is wisdom. James 1.5 tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, we should ask of God and he will give us, he will grant us freely wisdom. But specifically, another, another statement, it is in, in the order of God that those who bear responsibility should often meet together to counsel with one another and to pray earnestly for that wisdom which he alone can impart. Unitedly make known your troubles to God. Talk less. Much precious time is lost in talk that brings no light. Let brethren unite in fasting and prayer for the wisdom that God has promised to supply. 
There's necessity after necessity that aren't about crises. The marriage one obviously was a crisis, but, but, but there's discord sometimes, even just minor discord. That maybe some of these things would go away if, if we spent more time just praying together instead of, instead of criticizing one another or, 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 or condemning one another or being angry with one another. We decided, you know what, I'm not going to say another word about this. All I'm going to do is ask that person to pray with me. And I'm going to pray. Discipleship would be stronger if we prayed together. Jesus' followers, what did they ask of Jesus? Lord, teach us to what? Pray, teach us to pray. In my uh, imagination, and hopefully it's sanctified, in my imagination, I see the reason why they did this is because they saw Jesus praying and they're saying, there's something about the way this guy prays. Lord, we want to pray like you. They, they observed and they learned by observing. How many of you have kids? How many of you want to raise your hands really high that they do things that you do that you wish they wouldn't do? That few of you, come on. I'll raise some other things, some feet for you as well. I mean, I hear my kids talk. I go, don't, don't talk like that. And that, Christina goes, you're talking like that. Oh, yeah. Right? We, we learn more by observing. And many times, what if the young and the old were praying together? What if, what if you were praying with these young people up here? Wouldn't that grow them and strengthen them and disciple them? And maybe, hey, and what if they were praying with you? Wouldn't that grow you and strengthen you and disciple you when you see some of their faith? I was at the school. I'm just, this is a random tangent story, and I know I've already gone too long, but oh well. Um, uh, just a quick story. It was so beautiful. I was with the middle school, some middle school kids. We were with the middle school kids, and we divided the guys and the girls up. And at the end of it, we asked them to pray together, and not one of them balked. We asked them to split up into groups, and not one of them said, no, I'm not going to pray with them. I only make that point because if we did the same thing in here, there'd be some of you who said, I'm not going to pray with anybody. And I'm not talking about the people that, that haven't been raised in the church or have, aren't familiar with who we are. I'm talking about even people that have grown up this whole time so we could learn something from the young people. Who, If I said to them, hey, let's pray together, they'd probably do it without any problem because I've seen it just a couple weeks ago. I was so touched by those kids praying together. But discipleship, what discipleship would happen? And finally, one final thing. How many more people would come to know Jesus and the beauty and the love and the blessing of Jesus? We spent more time praying together for these people. If several could meet together with one accord with hearts burdened for perishing souls and should offer earnest, fervent prayers, they would prove effectual. Why do not believers feel a deeper, more earnest concern for those who are not walking with Jesus why do not two or three meet together and plead with God for the salvation of some special one and then for still another? Prayers for revival, for life change, for salvation. The records of history prove that these things do happen. What would happen to our school if groups got together and prayed for our school every single week? What would happen? for our families, if all the spouses made a commitment that we're going to pray together every single day. Not just at lunch or dinner time, not just with our kids before they go to bed, but just not worry about the awkwardness and just pray. What would happen in our church 
if we prayed with one another? What type of witness would that be? It is normative to pray. It is normative to pray for others. What would happen in our church and in our world if it became normative to pray together? As you think about that question, I hope that you'll take out the connection card. We have some areas there in which maybe you can check that you'd be interested in being a part of praying with others. But at the very least, you can accept this challenge by finding someone, maybe even someone before you leave here today and say, can we pray together this week? Can we pray together this week? Can I pray with you this week? Young people, will you do this too? Find someone to pray with. Spend the week, doing. Uh, take some time to do that. And to all of us, not so young as well. Let's not be so busy. Let's not be so proud. And let us not see it as so unnecessary that we don't take time to pray with one another. Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of prayer. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the clear evidence in scripture that it is to be a normal practice. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in fact, the most common and normal thing for the church to pray together. Jesus, you know this is something that I at times struggle with. I get busy and rushed. Lord, help me to slow down, to pray with others. Lord, I pray for the homes that are represented here, the the families that are represented here. Lord, be with them and help them to begin to pray together, not because they're maybe in crisis, but, but because the need is there at all times. In our workplaces, Lord, where where we have the freedom to pray with others, help us to have the courage to pray with our coworkers. Lord, in all this, may it connect us more to you and more to one another, that you may be glorified and that we may grow more in the image of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for this blessing of prayer, and I thank you for this church family that I love so dearly. In your name we pray. Amen.